such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. God, our confidence is toward you. And our sufficiency is from you. God, and we pray now, uh, knowing, uh, agreeing with your word that what we're doing here, even when we look at your word, it's, it's vain. It's death apart from the life-giving work of your spirit. And so we pray, God, we pray that the spirit would give life. God, I pray that with unveiled face, you would help us to behold the glory of the Lord. And to be transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. We know this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. God, so I thank you for this opportunity we have um, to behold the Lord. The one who shines brighter and purer than all the angels heaven can boast. And I thank you that um, we are his people And that even though we know in part and we see in part now, one day we will know in full and see in full. And uh, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. God, fill us with that hope and help us to live worthy of that calling now. And use your word uh, to, to make us more worthy in the way that we walk and live our lives. God, honor and praise and glory to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, it's good to be with you again. Um, If you haven't been with us the last few weeks, we've been going through Titus, and today we will finish, Lord willing. Um, So if you'll open your Bibles there, Titus chapter 3, the back half. Uh, Last week we looked at the first part of this final chapter of Titus, and there Paul encouraged Titus to remind the Christians in Crete of the need to be meek, submissive to public authorities, and then gentle to the general public, to all people. These reminders, if you'll remember, climaxed in a call to show all meekness to all people. And as Paul had done previously in the letter, and as he does in uh, others of his letters, he grounded these instructions in the gospel, the teaching about God our Savior. And he presented one of the most beautiful statements in all of the Bible, um, Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. I've already been told by one of you that, that you memorized that this week, and I praise the Lord for that. And it speaks of how our triune God has mercifully saved us. And this Christian duty uh, that Paul urgently called the church to in Crete is fueled and shaped by this great gospel, this Christian doctrine. God's work is always prior and fundamental to our work. Um, Dr. Ray Van Nest summarizes these last two chapters of Titus like this. He says uh, that it's gospel-shaped living rooted in the gospel. There's a certain kind of living that should come out of people who trust in the gospel and fix their attention on it. And with the rest of chapter 3, Paul continues to hit those same notes. 
and he gives some concluding instructions for the church's health. Um, So we'll start in verse 8. We'll spend the majority of our time in these first few verses. And Paul transitions to this next section uh, with something of a summary statement in verse 8. And this also starts our first main point, which is this. uh, The center of the church's focus. The center of the church's focus. Look at verse 8 with me. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Now, there are five statements in the pastoral epistles. Remember, the pastoral epistles are Titus along with First and Second Timothy. They're very similar. Um, and there are five statements that are explicitly labeled trustworthy sayings. Uh, all, all of them basically have to do with our salvation in Christ. The first one is in First Timothy. It says, this is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance, that Christ died, Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, Paul says. Um, it's interesting to see what the other ones are. I'll leave that to you to investigate. Uh, but what is Paul identifying here in Titus 3 as the trustworthy saying? Well, I think in the immediate context, there's really only one option. And that it's referring back to that magnificent statement about our salvation in Christ by the Spirit that God worked according to His mercy in verses 4 through 7. And these gospel truths, uh, these words of our salvation, Paul is putting forth as trustworthy. They are worthy targets for our faith. You know, your faith has to have an object. People say, I'm a person of faith. I'm a spiritual person. Your faith needs an object. Faith always has an object. And these, this, these concrete words about how God has saved us in Christ, that is the worthy target for our faith, and that is fodder for our faith. And consequently, Paul wants Titus to insist on these things. Uh, the, the word insist there is used one other time in the New Testament in another pastoral epistle, and Paul uses it uh, pejoratively to speak of the false teachers about how they make confident assertions. There's the word. Make confident assertions about things they don't know about. Um, So here, Paul is directing Titus to speak confidently these trustworthy words. Uh, The King James says to affirm constantly, to insist emphatically. And I think the things that Paul wants Titus to insist on include uh, not only those trustworthy words but also the the ethical instructions that he grounded upon those in the first part of the chapter. So this is what the church needs. This this is where they need to fix their attention, the center of their focus. It's what every individual Christian needs, a constant, confident emphasis or insistence on the gospel and secondarily the practical implications of that good news. Titus, fix the church's attention here. Insist on these things. And Paul tells us why he instructs Titus to do this. Look at verse 8 with me again. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that, here comes the purpose, those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. It's interesting. Confident, and we've seen this all over Titus, Confident, constant insistence upon the gospel 
should lead to devoted engagement in good works. The gateway to good works is doctrine, especially the teaching about our salvation. God's mercy, the Son's giving of Himself to pay sin's penalty, the Son's giving us of the Spirit to break sin's power, all according to God's mercy, not because of a single work done by us in righteousness. And good works come from this, not necessarily because good works come immediately from knowledge of these things. You know what? The Bible doesn't say works come from knowledge. The Bible says works come from faith. These gospel truths about how God has saved us in Christ, they're not just for us to know. They're for us to trust in. They're for us to hope in. And when we do that, then devotion to good works will come. I mean, notice in this purpose statement, he says that those who believe in God will be careful to devote themselves to good works. Faith is prior. But it's also worth noticing that the gospel does not produce good works in people in a way that bypasses their own effort and their own striving. Uh, That verb that's translated being careful to One lexicon defines that this way, of giving sustained thought to something. Uh, So good works are not just something God's people execute in spontaneity. We are to give sustained thought to this, to devote significant mental energy and time to consider how we might busy ourselves with them. So, So if we put it all together, we could say it this way. Sustained exposure to the gospel, sustained hoping in the gospel, should lead to sustained thought about good works, and therefore sustained engagement in them. Good works still require great effort on our part, even acknowledging that God's work is prior and fundamental, and they rise from our simply hoping in them. You're skipping a step in the argument. If you read the verse this way, to say Paul wants Titus to insist on the trustworthy words about our salvation and the practical life implications that grow out of that so that good works will just pop up in the church. No, insist on these things so that those who believe in God will be careful to, will give sustained thought to how they might devote themselves to, busy themselves with, actively engage in good works works. You do not get from gospel to good works without intervening effort. Significant forethought, diligent execution, and the gospel produces this effort because when we trust in it and when we treasure it, it compels us to want to give us, uh, to give great effort in good works, and it convinces us that it's worth it. Also notice the fact that true good works rise, uh, the fact that they rise from faith and sound doctrine, it also does not mean that we only need to focus on learning doctrine, and we don't also need specific moral instruction. We need doctrine to believe, and we need moral exhortations to obey. Remember, the things that Titus is supposed to insist on unto the multiplication of good works in the church is the gospel 
and the practical life implications that grow out of it, and you need to be meek because of God's mercy. We must be taught about the kind of godliness that the gospel produces so we know what to aim at with our faith-filled effort. Um, Perhaps you've noticed this, but the theme of good works in the book of Titus is extremely prominent, extremely prominent. Uh, Standing the foundation of all of that is that statement in 2.14 that says, Christ gave himself to redeem us from lawlessness so that he would have a people for himself, a people of his own special possession, who were zealous for good works. And then at the end of chapter 1, the false teachers were described as unfit for every good work, which makes sense, right? If good works come from the true gospel and they don't hold fast to the true gospel, they're unfit for every good work. And in the middle of chapter 2, Titus is told to be a model of all good works, which also makes sense because as a leader in the church, Titus is a, a especially visible representation of the gospel, which should issue forth in good works. And then in this chapter of Titus, chapter 3, it it comes hard. Verse 1 says, we should be ready for every good work, which indicates preparation and anticipation. This verse we've just read, uh, we should be careful to devote ourselves to good work. Again, as we talked about, sustained forethought, careful consideration. And then at the end of this chapter, in verse 14, it says, we should learn to devote ourselves to good works which indicates growing in understanding of what they are and how to do them well. So I think this gives us a really full, beautiful picture of what the Christian's posture toward good works should be. In light of a hope in Christ and how He has saved us and given us the Spirit to renew us, there should be an eagerness or a zeal to engage in good works. They study earnestly about them, verse 14, learn them. They carefully contemplate how to carry them out. They prudently prepare. They make calculated plans, giving sustained thought to. And then they zealously execute them. Christ's people are zealous for good works, and that's what that looks like. This is the case because Christ is purifying the church for himself. And this is the kind of people he is saving for himself. This is the normal Christian life. And it's beautiful. Um, I've seen a healthy abundance of good works since I've been here at Calvary in the last seven months. But let me encourage you still, for Christ's sake, for the body's sake, and for your own sake, abound all the more. Uh, Paul told the church in Thessalonica, he said, We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing already, we ask and urge that you do so more and more. So I ask you, abound still more. Learn what good works Christ wants. Seek greater understanding of how to do them well. Organize your life in such a way that you live in a state of of readiness to seize upon opportunities to accomplish them. Give sustained thought regularly to how you might devote yourself to them and zealously do them. 
learn and prepare and plan and consider, yes, but then do work the work with eagerness and zeal for the glory of Christ who saved you. And before we move on, um, I think it's worth pointing out again that in many ways, verse 8 encapsulates uh, much of what we've seen taught in the last two chapters of Titus, that the gospel message can only lead to good works in the people who hope in it, and only it can. At the end of verse 8, Paul succinctly gives more encouragement to Titus to follow the course of action he's proposing. He makes explicit there will be great benefit from insisting on these good works producing words. Look at the end of verse 8 with me. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And these results validate the worthiness of insisting upon the gospel. Right? Um, that, might, that might sound like it's not that profitable. Say, he's going to give us the gospel again. He's going to tell us the same old moral instructions that we've already heard again. Remember at the beginning of, of this chapter, it said, remind the Christians in Crete of these things. Paul says this is profitable for people. These things are excellent. And the good works that will, will validate that that is the case, that come from the one who fixes their, fixes their attention on the gospel. Uh, So Paul's designation of this insistence on the gospel as profitable sets the stage for his instruction in verse 9, because he's about to tell Titus how to handle some unprofitable teaching that's appearing in the church. Look at verse 9 with me. It says, but alternatively, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. So verse 8 gives us something to insist on. Verse 9 gives us something to Avoid. And so here's our second main point, threats to the church's focus. Threats to the church's focus. And notice that the encouragement was not merely to recognize these things are not hills to die on. The exhortation was these hills are things to stay away from, to avoid. Uh, literally, that verb translated avoid, it's, it's used elsewhere in the New Testament uh, as people standing around, right? don't jump in there, or in a more active sense, to go around, hence to avoid. Uh, this is a different strategy than we often see in the New Testament, even from Paul himself, uh, where he, he gives a call to engage theological issues and contend for the truth in the face of false teaching. Here, a different tactic, stay away, avoid it. It's not worth entering into the debate with the quarrelsome people who were arguing for this. Uh, So what are these things he's supposed to avoid? We aren't given a lot of detail, and perhaps that's a calculated move, as if Paul himself is modeling for Titus how these issues should be avoided instead of directly addressing. Uh, Titus, I don't want you to waste your time participating in these debates, these quarrels, so I'm not going to address them specifically Either And the first way that Paul describes these issues indicates that's his perspective. Look at verse 9 again. Avoid foolish controversies. Uh, you, could at, you could translate this as stupid questions, uh, inquiries, or uh, investigations into matters of pointless religious controversy, uh, contentious discussion about 
relatively substanceless or highly speculative religious matters. See, to focus not on sound doctrine, but rather on things uncertain or or speculative, can only produce dissensions, which this verse also explicitly lists as something to avoid. Uh, If there's little firm about a matter by which one party can be convinced or refuted, devotion to these things can only produce dissensions and divisions, pointless ones. The last matter in the list also carries that nuance of divisiveness, is as quarrels. Um, so Paul describes the false teaching addressed in, in all of the pastoral epistles, really. Again, Titus, 1st and 2nd Timothy, very similar to this. Uh, this foolish controversy label. Uh, it, he uses a lot of different words for in those three books uh, to kind of make the same critical judgment about the error that was threatening Crete, for Titus, and Ephesus for Timothy. Um, Here's some of the language that he uses. These are strong words. Does this false teaching that's going around uh, that, remember he told Titus in chapter 1, is upsetting whole households in the church? Vain discussion. Foolish, ignorant controversies. Empty talk. It's vacuous. Ear, (laughs) sorry, irreverent. That's a tough one irreverent or silly Jewish myths, endless genealogies promoting speculation, pointless quarrels over words, irreverent babble that masquerades as knowledge. Um, There's a traditional understanding about the Bible in the Reformed tradition that says it's self-attesting, that the Bible attests all by itself to its own divine power and authority and inspiration. And Paul uh, apparently thinks that this false teaching is also self-attesting. It attests to its own falsehood and unprofitability all by itself. He judges it to be so conspicuously false and fanciful that it's profitless to engage the issue. This is an amazing judgment to make, I think. Um, Now, I, I think we shouldn't seize upon this word controversy and take it as a license to avoid all theological controversy. Uh, the same word here, it's translated controversy, is used in Acts, Acts 15 to describe the deliberations at the Jerusalem Council, which said, uh, do Gentiles need to become Jews in order to become part of the people of God and saved by Jesus? There it's translated debate in that chapter. It sounds nicer than controversy. But it's actually the same word. Uh, Surely, though, that was a worthwhile discussion. That was a worthy controversy. To avoid that debate would have been wrong. So the goal is not to avoid controversy. The goal is not to avoid theological debate. The goal is to avoid foolish controversy, as this verse has it. Uh, We don't have a lot of detail, as I said, but we do have some indication about the nature of this foolish controversy, uh, some of which you may have picked up on. The fact that genealogies are listed, uh, family trees, along with the note that these quarrels are about the law. It's an indicator there's a, a Jewish flavor to this empty false teaching that's upsetting the church in Crete. 
And remember in chapter 1, Paul says the false teachers are members of the circumcision party and denounces their devotion to Jewish myths and the commandments of men and their fixation on ceremonial purity and defilement. Uh, But what's this business about genealogies? So potentially what's happening is the false teachers are, are taking these genealogies from the Old Testament probably and engaging in highly speculative or allegorical interpretations of them, trying to inappropriately find significance out of obscure details. And that kind of thing was actually pretty characteristic of um, the Judaism that had spread through the Roman Empire in that time period. Or, potentially, uh, behind this unhealthy focus on genealogies was the belief that if you could trace your lineage back to this or that important Jewish person, then it meant some kind of advantage for you before God. And we see that kind of thinking uh, combated in the Gospels, right? Uh, Jesus interacting with the Pharisees, and they say, we have Abraham as our father. Jesus said, the devil is your father. And John the Baptist, the the same thing. Um, he, He told the Pharisees who were coming, who weren't bearing fruits worthy of repentance, he said, don't presume on God... This is a paraphrase, right? Don't presume upon God saying to yourself that Abraham is your father. God can take rocks and raise up for himself children for Abraham if he wants. Um, So here's a little side note application for us. And this may pertain especially to the children in here. Do not hope in your family tree for salvation. You will not get to heaven riding on the coattails of of your parents or any other family relation. It's not enough to say I was born to Christian parents. It's not enough to say my brother is a devout Christian. The one I hear most of the time, if I'm witnessing to someone and they put their hope in their family, it's their grandma usually. I'm not sure why, but my grandma was a very devout person. And so, so I'm safe with God because of my relationship with my grandmother. Uh, to have believing family is a wonderful, gracious gift from God, but it will not save you. You have to get to the point where you can say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, in the life I live in the flesh. I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You personally need to trust in Christ. Not that daddy's a preacher, not that grandmother's devout. Uh, Moving back to Titus 3. Finally, what do we make of this last item? Quarrels over the law. Uh, It seems, right, on one reading, that Paul's other letters are full of quarrels about the law. I should say, a certain kind of quarreling about the law. Uh, what are these law issues that Paul wants Titus uh, to stiff arm instead? Uh, if you remember in our discussion of chapter 1, and if you weren't here, you won't, um, so I'll tell you, that we saw that, that there's some resonance between uh, the false teaching that was happening in Crete and, and some of the things Jesus had to, had to address with the Pharisees in the Gospels, especially with Um, uh, purity and defilement uh, ceremonially. So perhaps 
similar to how the Pharisees lobbied all kinds of challenges at Jesus that concerned contentious, nitpicky, often pointless matters that supposedly had to do with God's law. Perhaps these interactions give us some precedent for the types of quarrels uh, happening in Crete that Paul is warning against. But we don't have to know for sure because Paul says we need to avoid them. We do need to remember this principle, though. Uh, Verse 9 tells us to avoid quarrels. And then verse 2 of this chapter, remember, told us Christians are not to be quarrelsome people. Uh, So be careful not to give yourself a pass on being a quarrelsome person just because the topic of your frequent quarrels often has something to do with the Bible, supposedly. Uh, If you're always walking around with a theological bone to pick with people, there's something wrong. Don't be a quarrelsome person. Contend for the truth, but don't be quarrelsome. Moving on in the text now, Paul tells us explicitly why Titus needed to employ this avoid tactic about these things. Uh, Look at the second half of the verse. Avoid them for, because they are unprofitable and worthless. Uh, So you see now how the instruction in verse 9 mirrors the instruction in verse 8 precisely, just from the opposite perspective. Verse 8, insist on these things for they are profitable for people. Verse 9, avoid these things because it is unprofitable. Uh, Fix your attention on sound doctrine because it's practical. It's useful. Avoid dumb religious controversies because they're not. Uh, There's a really wonderful, healthy pragmatism about all of this, isn't there? Uh, The other descriptor Paul uses for this kind of teaching in verse 9 is equally unflattering, worthless, futile, empty, fruitless, powerless, idle. Calvin says this, speaking broadly about these two verses. I imagine when I say that, like some of you sit up like, oh, Calvin, and some of you automatically, okay, great, I don't have to listen for a little bit. He's, he's going to read a quote. But listen to this. This is good. <laughs> <clears throat> Calvin says this, Titus is enjoined to disregard other matters and to teach those which are certain and undoubted and to press them on the attention of their hearers to dwell upon them while others talk idly about things of little importance. Paul wishes believers to give to good works their study and application. And when the apostle says in verse 8, let them be careful to do so, he appears to allude elegantly to the useless contemplations of those who speculate without advantage and without regard to active life. So Paul contrasts questions or controversies with sound and certain doctrine. And he calls them foolish, not that at first sight they appear to be such, for on the contrary, they often deceive by a vain parade of wisdom, but foolish because they contribute nothing to godliness. I think we have to be careful uh, applying this instruction. Uh, We've all known someone, we've all been the one to dismiss a doctrine or a teaching that's actually quite important uh, by simply categorizing categorizing it as something that is um, unprofitable and worthless to contend for. Or maybe because it doesn't appear to have immediate life application. So it takes wisdom to know when to pull the avoid card and when to pull the contend card. 
And I can't list out for you every conceivable situation when it's appropriate to play which card. But you do need to know there's a time for each. You do need to have both. And Paul's a great example of that truth. Remember here, uh, in all of the pastoral epistles, he, he doesn't engage directly. And yet, of course, uh, on different law issues. I think about Galatians. He runs to the fight, right, screaming. People will err both ways, fighting where they should avoid, avoiding where they should fight. Uh, so here's a good rule of thumb. If the Bible goes there, then it's territory worth investigating and contending for. If the Bible goes there, it's territory worth investigating and contending for. In the same epistles where Paul says, avoid this babble, don't get into this, he also tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work and that you may be wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. Paul says, hold fast to, insist upon sound doctrine, which is found in his word. A great verse, which all of you should know, and it's easy to remember, is Deuteronomy 29, 29. He says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do them. The things revealed by God in the Bible are for us. Go there, investigate it, teach it, learn it, and if necessary, contend for it. And the things of God that are not in the revelation of God, His Word, those belong to the Lord our God. And don't waste your time quarreling over things that the Word doesn't plainly talk about. On the other hand, we dare... We dare not categorize anything that the Bible teaches as profitless. Eschatology, it's in the Bible. If you can go too far, don't sweep it away as profitless. Uh, Now, to be sure, perhaps some of you, this thought came to your mind. Um, The things in verse 8 that Paul said were unprofitable were all superficially tied to the Bible, weren't they? I mean, that was the argument. Genealogies from the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law from the first five books of the Bible. Um, I think usually it's pretty obvious when, when uh, an issue is, is far removed from the actual meaning and purpose of a text. I, I think usually it should be pretty easy to identify foolish controversy, even if it's seemingly connected to the Bible. And here's how. It will be connected to the Bible only in a very loose way. Uh, It will be very peripheral to the point of the text. It will be very beside the point, as the idiom has it. Or it may center on things that are cryptic or obscure. So don't get sucked into that kind of stuff. Uh, The internet is a... uh, Choose a nice word. The internet is full of it, of this kind of stuff. And just on a practical note, if you don't feel like you're equipped to recognize this, then ask someone who's been walking with the Lord longer than you. Hey, is this an issue worth sticking my nose into? They can help you with matters of wisdom and discernment. I think a secondary rule of thumb, how prominent is the matter in the Bible 
how clear is the Bible on the matter. Um, But we've got to keep going. Let's turn our attention now back to the specific flow of thought in Titus 3. Verse 9, in summary fashion, again, the nature of the issue to avoid foolish, religious, emptiness, superficially connected to the Old Testament. And the nature of the issue maker is that they're quarrelsome. And we're about to see that while you may need to adopt a hands-off approach to certain issues, you cannot necessarily adopt a hands-off approach to the people who are devoting themselves to those issues. So you should avoid religious foolishness, but if he's a part of your church or influencing your church, you have to confront the religious fool. Look at verse 10 with me. As for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Uh, The Greek word for this divisive, factious man is is the word we get the English heretic from. So many older translations say, warn or reject the heretic. Uh, Now, in early Christian history, the word heretic took on a very specific meaning to refer to someone who denies a cardinal doctrine of the faith, like Arius saying, Jesus is not God. Okay, he's labeled heretic. He denies a first-order doctrine. Um, but here it's probably right to understand the, the term more broadly, uh, that it hadn't necessarily taken on that very specific meaning yet. Um, and so the more general idea, a person who causes divisions or factions is, is the right one. And per, perhaps particularly because of uh, the tenet that they are factioning around, or the teaching uh, that, that, that is the, the orbit of this faction. Uh, in this context, I think it's pretty clear, Paul has in mind the man who is devoting himself to these foolish, speculative, religious controversies, described in verse 9, uh, who's fixed his attention on those profitless debates. And it's needlessly dividing and troubling the church body. So he's divisive because he's drawing people in the Cretan church away from attention to sound doctrine. He's blurring the focus of the church from where it should be. And so while the issues don't need to be addressed directly, the issue maker absolutely does. They need to be warned of the harm of engaging in these foolish quarrels. So somehow, Paul says, to confront the issue maker all the while avoiding the issue. Uh, Beware of the man who is quarrelsome, especially the one who stirs up strife over things that that are ultimately pointless uncertainties about speculative falsehoods. And the plan to confront this guy kind of reads like a condensed version of Jesus' instruction in Matthew 18 about church discipline. Uh, After a series of warnings have been issued, warn him once and then twice, clearly, I think these warnings are for the purpose of restoring this guy out of, out of concern for him. But if these warnings are disregarded, it says, have nothing more to do with him. Reject him. Because the church's attention must be focused on sound doctrine, if a man consistently works to drag the church's attention away from that, and he refuses to hear people who urge him to stop. He must be put out of the church. Church discipline must be administered. The one who needlessly and harmfully divides the church 
must himself be divided from the church. Now, some may wonder, uh, is this actually a more divisive course of action than this man himself was taking? I mean, surely there, there are problems with letting him stay, but at least we're all together still, right? Isn't this more divisive? And he's being put out for divisiveness? How does that make sense? Uh, here's the answer. If your unity is not in the truth, then you either have a fake unity or you have a unity that God doesn't want you to have. Do you know what the greatest display of unity in the Bible is on, on mankind's part? Right? We, we sometimes hear this soaring rhetoric from like world politicians. We just need to be more unified. The world needs to be more one. They don't talk about what they need to be one around. We hear this even uh, in the church. Sometimes all that matters is that the church is one and the church is unified. And yes, that's important. But unity for unity's sake is not necessarily good. Uh, I alluded to this. I didn't finish this thought, so let me pick it back up. The greatest display of unity in the Bible is the Tower of Babel, when all of mankind is of one accord. And that was a unity that God judged man for, right? The church must be unified around the truth which accords with godliness, the gospel and the life it produces. And if she must divide in order to achieve this unity, then she must. Uh, there's an incredible verse in 1 Corinthians 11. You don't, don't turn there. You can look at it later. It's, it's in 18 and 19. Paul says, In the first place, when you come together as a church... I hear that there are divisions among you. The same word used here in Titus 3. And you might think that he's about to uh, castigate them for that, right? To jump on them. When you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions. Stop it. That's what he does most of the time when he brings up divisions, right? That's not where he goes. He says, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. The division involved in church discipline is necessary to achieve the unity that Christ wants for his church. It's really important for us to have instructions like we find in this verse. Uh, we want to be forbearing with people, but in some cases, patient instruction and gentle warning, those never need to be absent. But there does come a point where it ceases to be profitable and it ceases to be good for the church. So why are the church and her leaders able to discipline this man? Uh, because his continued, as we're about to learn, the next verse is continued obstinate refusal to turn from this pursuit of sin and, and speculative error. Even in the face of sincere effort to bring him back, it reveals something about him. Uh, the blatant refusal to repent lets you know something about him. That's what verse 11 says. So have nothing to do with him, verse 11, knowing because you know that such a person is warped and sinful. As a result of, of past perversion and turning aside, he presently sins. And even the repeated admonitions of the church won't turn him back. Say, wow, that, that's, 
that's a difficult thing to conclude about someone, to be able to say, to, to get to a point where you say, I, I know this about someone. How can, how can someone make that kind of condemning conclusion about someone? Well, Paul says people make that condemning conclusion about themselves. That's what the rest of the verse says. In the end, he is self-condemned. In church discipline, the church works lovingly to warn, to, to, to bring him back. But if he will not come back, then the church does not condemn him. He has condemned himself. And the church is simply called to solemnly recognize this. And for the glory of God, the good of the church, to take action accordingly. So these verses represent the battle for the church's attention. Paul wants Titus to confidently, emphatically put these words about salvation in Christ before them. He wants to fix their attention on the gospel. He wants them to do that so that they'll give sustained thought to good works. He wants to fix their attention on good works. And over against this, he wants to chase the church's attention away from foolish controversies. Because they center on falsehood and they breed needless quarrels. He tells, he tells Titus, don't bring it to the church's attention by addressing it even. Just avoid it. And then confront the man who does give his attention there. And if he chooses not to return his attention to sound doctrine, he's condemned himself. He must not be allowed to continue to drag the church's attention away from the gospel and from good works. Now we'll close quickly with verses 12 through 15. And it concludes the letter with uh, some instructions about Paul's ministry that he's superintending and some personal greetings. And these verses will show us that Paul himself is fixing his attention on the gospel and on good works. And that's our last main point is Paul's example of a properly focused ministry. Paul's example of a properly focused ministry. Verse 12, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they lack nothing. Uh, so all of these specific plans, organization and direction for sending and coming demonstrate Paul is carefully considering, giving sustained thought to good works in gospel ministry, the ministry of the word. We shouldn't expect anything less from a man so gripped by the gospel. Uh, Paul will send either Artemis or Tychicus, apparently he hasn't decided yet, to continue the work in Crete for Titus, and that will spring Titus to be able to join Paul in the gospel labors in Nicopolis in the upcoming winter. Uh, and then these other guys, Zena and Apollos, are coming to Crete for some ministry purpose. Perhaps it's just to hand this letter that we've been studying uh, to Titus and for the church in Crete secondarily. And then Paul wants the church in Crete to participate in the good work of gospel ministry by speeding ahead, sending along for the journey, these two guys, making sure that they lack in nothing. Uh, to use John's language in 3 John, to, to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. 
and, and to provide for Christian ministers during their travels was a really significant part of the hospitality and brotherly love that was a hallmark of the early church. I think in addition to uh, careful consideration for good works that's demonstrated here by Paul, you also see a zealous carrying out of good works uh, of the ones he had so thoughtfully made preparations for. And verse 12, where he told Titus to do your best to come or make every effort to do so. You could translate that verb, be eager, be zealous. An eager discharge of some duty with great determination or it could refer to uh, with great speed. Make haste to do this. In a form of that exact same words in verse 13 also. Send Zenos and Apollos ahead diligently or eagerly or even zealously. For again, perhaps, if speed is, is the nuance in mind, with haste. Uh, so I think there's a zeal right, to, to carry out these things that he's carefully making calculated plans for. And after modeling this, uh, Paul explicitly calls for it once again in verse 14. Again, he says the same thing again. Look there with me. It's a familiar tune. Verse 14, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. One commentator says this about the repetition. Before his final greeting, Paul emphasizes the theme of the epistle one last time. Christianity must manifest itself in practical ways. In light of Cretan society, notoriously wicked, and the young age of the church, this repetition is appropriate. To be devoted to good works is exactly the same phrase in verse 8. This means not that Paul is running out of material or running out of inventiveness, but rather he wants to drive home the central thrust of the epistle, the practical necessity of good deeds. All Christians must learn that good works, specifically those that provide for people with pressing need, as this verse indicates, must B, the logical and natural extension of submitting to salvation in Christ. Um, So part of the Christian's devotion to good works includes, as we see here, helping cases of urgent need. And Paul says attention to cases of pressing need will help ensure a church's fruitfulness, will prevent you from being unfruitful. And the Cretan church had an opportunity with Paul's instruction to make provision for these guys as as they're coming through. Finally, Paul brings the letter to a close in verse 15. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Uh, I think by using that phrase, greet those who love us in the faith. And then notice, did you notice in 14, he used the designation, our people. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. So uh, highlighting our people and those who love us in the faith, I think Paul is subtly distinguishing between the true Christian in Crete who believes in the gospel that Paul preaches and his life, he lives out the gospel, it issues forth in good works, and those who, apart, uh, despite their claim to know God, chase after unsound doctrine or unfit for every good work, And for those who stand in the true faith with Paul, who love other believers like Paul faithfully, 
God's grace is for them. And that's how Paul concludes the letter. Grace be with you all. And grace can be yours. If you will recognize that you don't deserve grace, that you deserve death and hell, and that because of your sin, uh, you're actually at enmity with God. And if you don't agree with me, then you can tune out for the good news that's coming because, because it won't matter to you. But if you recognize that about yourself, then there's an offer of grace for you that God the Son became a man to live a perfect life on your behalf, the life you should have lived. And then he died a sinner's death to take the punishment for sin that you deserved. And by his death, he paid sin's penalty and then he rose from the dead, breaking sin's power. And if you'll just trust in him, if you will just trust in him, then by an act of free mercy, God will make you uh, one of these people that Paul says is our people. And God will make you one of these people who love us in the faith. And you'll be forgiven, and you'll be given the spirit to renew you and regenerate you. And so that as you trust in Christ, continue to do that, you actually will have power and desire, willing and working, to do good to others, even at no benefit to yourself. And as we close, let me urge you, um, those who have the grace of God with you in Christ, this week, fix your attention on the trustworthy words of the gospel. Devote yourself thoughtfully and zealously to good works for the glory of God and, and for your own joy and progress in the faith. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the letter to Titus. Thank you for inspiring it. We have seen uh, that what you say about the scriptures are true. They teach us. And they train us for righteousness. And they make us wise for salvation. And God, I pray uh, that you would be honored by how we respond in faith and obedience to your word now. Give us grace for that, uh, for the glory of Christ in his church. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.